Balls. He's a libertarian in chief. This is the libertarian chief chat. Just a libertarian chit chat with the chief. Oh, hey, I'm Kevin. I'm here too. All right. Welcome to Chief Chats with Kevin Hobby and Todd Hagopian. I'm Kevin Hobby. And I'm Todd Hagopian, and we have a fantastic guest for you today, another Ladies of Liberty episode, this time featuring our friend Maggie Anders. Maggie, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I am Maggie. I'm, I actually work with Young Americans for Liberty, so I work in the movement, and I'm pretty active on Twitter, unlike most of my coworkers, uh, and you can find me at Liberty Anders. Awesome. And that's, of course, how uh, Maggie and I met and how Maggie and Kevin met. Um, and Maggie, we'd love to start these things just so people can get a feel for who you are uh, by talking about how you got into liberty, what your path to liberty looked like to begin with. Absolutely. Uh, so first things first, thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, to kind of get into it, my Mom was an OG Ron Paul supporter back in 2007. She was brought into the movement by my aunt who was pregnant at the time. And her and her four sisters all went and knocked doors for Ron Paul back in 2007, which was uh, pretty interesting. So I was obviously like a nine-year-old, so I didn't really know what was going on, but <laughs> I got to meet Ron Paul at nine years old at one of his rallies in Baton Rouge. And 10 years later, I actually met him again at a YAL convention and uh, getting to tell him that I had met him 10 years earlier brought a big smile to his face, which was very sweet. Uh, but my path to liberty itself was a very winding road to say the least. Um, I definitely took a dive off the deep end for a while in my preteens, like most young preteen teenage girls I got deep into internet leftism um, and that was kind of just a, a wormhole in and of itself I think with any online culture you get radicalized over time and that's what happened to me um, but eventually I you know there were things that had happened in my life um, there was a huge BLM movement in my home city back in 2015. So 2020 was not new to me at all. Um, but a lot of things happened in my area that kind of caused me to take a step back and really start to think about all of these things that I held as um, deep seated beliefs about the world. And being an 18 year old or 17 year old at the time, I realized like I'm extremely young uh, I fall pretty easily to whatever, uh, the mob is telling me to think. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to explore other opinions and other beliefs, which made me extremely free speech, pro free speech at the time. Um, because getting exposed to other people's opinions made me realize that I had just been hearing, um, kind of a caricature of conservative opinions and, I didn't go full conservative. I landed somewhere in the middle. I became a libertarian um, because I still hold, you know, social issues very close to my chest. I still believe in human freedom. And I think that conservatives uh, are missing a lot, right? Um, and that, you know, leftists correctly identify that there are things in the world that are wrong. They just don't really identify the source very well. 
Yeah. Well, Kevin, when you were a preteen girl, you fell for communism too. <laughs> was, yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Tell us, was your a preteen girl? <laughs> was your uh, path similar to that? I mean, what what was it that snapped? Uh, it, 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 it was very similar. You know, I mean, if you if you see me on Twitter or anything, you hear me talking all the time about. Um, I think that one thing that the libertarians are missing the mark on, um, where we're losing to Marxist and communist and that more progressive, is um, if you look at. Um, social issues, most of the time, the um, kind of socialistic communist groups, they've attached themselves to social issues like that. So I believe that a lot of teens, preteens, a lot of early 20 people, they don't really care about economics because they don't understand it at that point, but they latch yeah. themselves on to social issues. And where we're missing the mark is the only avenue that they have right now is, well, if you support gay marriage and you know, you think Mexicans yeah. are people, then you got to be a socialist. And we're kind of missing the mark there. So I, I think that, you know, people get zapped into that and they're like, well, you know, if, if I support these progressive social issues, then I must support this economic model. And then they just kind of mm -hmm. fall into it. No, you're absolutely correct. And I remember calling myself a socialist and I, I didn't even understand economic policy at the time. I just thought that they kind of went together. Um, actually one video, uh, that really did it for me that kind of snapped me out of things was this, uh, hour long video that I sat through the entire hour. It was Peter Schiff at, um, what was it? The March on wall street. And he was basically oh, talking yeah, I remember to that where he held the sign. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was like, I am the 1%. Let's yeah. talk. And I just remember, I remembered, uh, stumbling on like across it on YouTube. And I was like, what is this? Like this guy just goes out here and like, that's pretty ballsy. Um, and I sat through the entire hour, just mesmerized and shocked by what I was hearing. And I remember that being a huge aha moment for me and things finally started to click, you know, I'm, I'm a big math person. So, um, economics started to make sense to me at that point. Very cool. And you mentioned um, a Black Lives Matter event early on. Can you mm -hmm. talk a bit about your experience in what was it, 2015 versus yes. the Black Lives Matter? And before we get into kind of your your experience in the libertarian movie, movement, let's talk about that for a minute. Is, were there differences or what does that movement look like then versus now? Yeah. So the people that were shocked by what happened in 2020, it kind of confused me because it was very similar to what was going on back in 2015, just at a much larger scale. So back in the day, Black Lives Matter protests were kind of confined to the area where something had happened. So for me, I was in Baton Rouge at the time and Alton Sterling was a black man who was shot um, in the neighborhood adjacent to my dad's house. Um, and he was shot several times while pinned on the ground. It was really, really bad. Um, and at the time, like this, like it still is, this movement meant a lot to me. Um, I remember, you know, uh, being super invested in the Michael Brown case um, and just kind of watching these protests erupt across the country. I didn't end up going to the protest in Baton Rouge because they were at night and there was a lot of shooting involved 
that's just kind of how it goes in Baton Rouge. Um, but what ended up really uh, messing with my conscience was um, later that week, I was also on Twitter way back in the day, but as a leftist, um, I wasn't super active myself. I just kind of paid attention to trends. And there was a trend of this like hashtag going around that said white purge of people like threatening to come to my hometown and kill white people and cops. Of course, I was like, that's stupid, you know. Um, but a week later, um, a guy came down from Missouri and shot um, four police officers in a gas station less than a mile away from my house. Uh, my stepmom, who was married to my mom at the time, um, she was an EMS driver, uh, and there were a lot of EMS people who were shot at at the same time as that event. Um, and it was weird. Uh, I didn't really have any sympathy for cops at that time. I probably shouldn't say that, but like at the time, I was like, oh well, like you know. Um, like it, they're, they're all bad. They're all participating in the system of, in, in, of injustice. And my mom actually worked closely with one of the police officers who died because she used to work as a physician in the ER and he would bring people in. And he was a very kind man. He passed away leaving his family behind. Um, and I remember my mom asking me if I could go to the police station with her to put out signs in front of the police station um, just kind of wishing them all well. They had been working for two weeks nonstop because obviously the Alton Sterling, sh Alton Sterling shooting happened and then the shooting of the police officers happened. And being a leftist, like a hardcore leftist at the time, when she asked me that, I felt this, um, this like tension where it was like I was battling two different sides of myself and trying to figure out what the moral thing to do was. And I decided the moral thing to do was to go to the police station and shake their hands and put these signs out by the road and wish them well and wish them love and peace, you know? Um, and that's really what ended up setting off the chain of events for me. Outside of all of like the YouTube videos or whatever, that was after this event happened. That event specifically is what made me want to kind of like reconsider, you know? Um, because at the time in my leftist brain, I thought the moral thing to do is hate these people. And like coming to terms with like, that's not the moral thing. The moral thing is not to hate other people. Um, that made me reconsider pretty much everything, so. Well, and, and I think it must have been another conversation that you and I were having uh, where you talked about actually having to drive to another state. You had mentioned your mother was married to another woman that you had to drive to another state for that wedding. And, and so now we're talking about Black Lives Matter and kind of seeing both sides of that issue. So now, now you're talking about these two issues that are so against, you know, traditional conservatives, conservatism that we see. Mm -hmm. And Tell us why you're in Young Americans for Liberty and how that all happened. So <laughs> through how, how you got into the libertarian movement and, and now we're very big in the libertarian movement. How did that evolution happen? For sure. So 
being confronted with all of these different situations and doing my own research and trying to learn more, um, I realized I was not on the left and I wasn't a conservative. I couldn't call myself a conservative because I did not want, you know, conservative values to be legislated. I didn't want to legislate morality onto people. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, maybe I'm a libertarian. Like that would make sense. Um, you know, the fiscally conservative, socially liberal, right. That everyone likes to mock and make fun of. But like, for me, that was me. I was like, okay, this makes sense. So my mom voted for Gary Johnson that year. I decided to vote for Gary Johnson. I really didn't do a lot of research on him. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> when I went into the voting booth, I turned 18 um, a week before I voted for the first time. Right. So yeah, I, I was like, okay, I'm probably a libertarian. Um, when I get to college, I am very opinionated. Um, it's not like I, I wasn't opinionated. I just wasn't well-researched on libertarianism. I get to college. I go up to the college Republicans and I'm like, Hey, where are the libertarians? They are not here. And so she said, you know, there's this group called Young Americans for Liberty and they're the libertarian group on campus. So I ended up going to the first meeting. Um, and we can talk about uh, being, you know, I, I walked in and I was surrounded by dudes and there was not a single female in sight. And I was like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? But uh, in my first couple interactions with, with Yao on my campus, me being a little baby libertarian, 18 years old, they gave me The Law by Frederick Bastiat. I read the first two pages and everything made sense. I was like, okay, yes, I'm a libertarian. Like all of it makes sense now, you know? Um, like uh, the, the real role of government is um, like rights are not bestowed to you by the government. The government's only purpose is to uphold your rights. Like, oh my God, that made so much sense to me. I was like, wow, this is beautiful. Um, and just the very welcoming and motivated and passionate atmosphere of y'all on my campus was really like all that I needed to like build drive within myself. And y'all on my campus was fighting a multi-year free speech battle. And I was like, whoa, we're actually doing something on my campus. This is crazy. Like I actually get to be a real activist for something that I care about. So yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And, and just so, uh, you know, inside of the libertarian movement, there are different opinions of Yao. And uh, yeah. the way you're describing <laughs> it, it's a very libertarian chapter. Did you find that your chapter was extremely libertarian or just libertarian leaning Republicans that you, that you interacted with and agreed with? Or what was that like? Um, so I think a lot of people have opinions on Yao based off of like maybe one or two people they've interacted with yeah. at a specific time. Um, being in Yao and working for Yao for three years, I have interacted with pretty much every libertarian or type of libertarian you could think of, right? Um, now, if you go to our site and join, we don't have like a five uh, option list of what you can like call yourself ideology ideologically you just put whatever you are so I love reading the submissions so it'll be like oh I'm a progressive I'm a left libertarian 
I'm a constitutionalist. I'm a conservative. I'm a conservative libertarian. I'm an anarcho-capitalist, right? Like I'm in, you know, um, just like a million different things. I'm a minarchist. One guy just put Ron Paul as his ideology. So I don't know. Like um, I like to think of Yao as like a really great umbrella organization for all types of libertarians. Um, and I think people's perception of us being more like, oh, you're the like conservatives, right? Um, comes from the fact that like a lot of the candidates that we endorse run as Republicans. And to that, I say, oh, well, and I don't mean to just like dismiss criticism, but um, I don't care. Like, I don't care to get into the nitty gritty of like what party someone's running under. I care about policy. That's the entire reason I got involved in this. I didn't get involved in this because I wanted to smash the two party system. Although I think that would be amazing. I got involved because I'm a libertarian, you know, and I think there's more to the LP or libertarianism than just breaking the duopoly, you know? Yeah. And probably you had it right. Um, the second time there's more to libertarianism <laughs> than breaking the duopoly, right? The LP, that's what, that's what they're firmly, you know, focused on. So Kevin, mm -hmm. one of our better episodes was Cliff. Um, talk about that a little bit and then, and then where do you want to go? Uh, yeah, so Cliff came in and was talking basically the same thing that, that you're saying, you know, about people were really giving him hate at the time. We got him on a mm -hmm. at a great time too, because he you was did. getting a lot of hate for <laughs> people were saying like, oh, y'all, yeah, yeah, we did. And he was fired up. But, and it was really great because because I'm a big bottom unity guy. Like, I don't care if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, you know, if, as long as you're liberty leaning and advancing us towards that, I don't care. I'm backing you 100%. And I think that the belief that we should argue over, well, that person's a, a lib sock. And so we hate them. They can't, we can't support them. And it's like, mm -hmm. guys, we're going way way closer to tyrannical government every day and we can yes, sort all yes. this small stuff out later but cliff was saying the same thing yeah right like we're so far away from it why are we arguing about these tiny things like how about how about we get to a point where we can actually decide like okay are we going to be a lib sock society are we going to be an ancap society because right now we're ways ways away from it you know we're arguing over mm -hmm. where we're going to set up our mars base before we have the rockets <laughs> So, no you're you're absolutely uh, correct yeah sorry um no uh, you're so absolutely I, correct i hate seeing uh, <laughs> sorry go ahead so no it's all good i uh i hate seeing the the hate that yao has been getting here recently just because you know there were a lot of um there were a lot of um upset libertarians for some republicans that were being backed but um overall i think you guys are doing doing really great so um can you talk to us about your role in yao because you're a director of the northeast and west coast yes sir Maybe. i think i'm saying that right yeah um whenever someone asks me to describe my role i clam up because i just i do a lot of different things right so um, so I work in the campus department. There are three departments in Yale, if you want to get the behind the scenes look. So there's campus, which is what I work in. There is grassroots, which handles all of the 
campaigns and elections. And then there's Devo, which handles fundraising. That's how we pay for all of this, right? Um, so campus, we serve um, as kind of the jugglers of everything, in my opinion, not to brag on campus, but um, we, so I oversee all of the college chapters in the Northeast and West Coast. I have an amazing team that works under me or with me. Um, they are like my family, honestly. Um, I, I hear people in, in uh, customer service or retail or the food industry talking about their horrible bosses and it makes me cringe. Not because I'm an amazing boss, but just because I absolutely adore everyone that works with me um, in the Northeast and West Coast. And we oversee over a thousand volunteers and what those volunteers do is really based on what they wanna do and also what YAL's priorities are at the time. Um, so there is this, um, this tendency to think about campus and campaigns as two separate things. Um, but in the campus department, we kind of see them as one and the same and working together. So without campus, we do not have elections and victories, right? The students in, um, in Yao work extremely, extremely hard. I remember the first time I was ever asked to phone bank, it was for Stuart Jones in South Carolina. He's amazing. Um, and we made almost a thousand calls, just my team of Yowlers in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, and so our campus program does that. Um, a lot of these students also get their first political job coming on to a campaign with us, which is how I got started working in political jobs. I did a, um, I did a month long deployment out in Texas. So yeah, but my day to day really depends on the season. Sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's just making sure that we're growing and not dying or plateauing as an organization. Um, sometimes it's interviewing 20 people a day. Those can be more of the mind numbing days because I talk to a lot of random people. Uh, sometimes we're organizing events uh, like Mobilize or YALCON. Um, and sometimes like today, I've been designing our training for the state chairs, which is gonna be happening in January. So it's a lot of different things that I do. <laughs> I talk to a lot of people and I think I posted this the other day that I have like over a thousand contacts in my phone at this point, just from all of the calls I've made over the past year and a half, but it's pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. What, was, uh, what was the role that that gentleman, the office that that gentleman was running for when you made a thousand calls? He was running for state rep in South okay. Carolina. So, yeah. I want to stop right there and I just want to talk to the audience for a minute. So uh, we all, for people who have ever complained about y'all, let's just think about this. How many people do you know who have run for state office or state house or something like this that have made a thousand calls on a libertarian campaign? That doesn't happen very often. I've been, the, the campaign that I've seen make the most calls was still less than a thousand. Um, so my point with that is just that this is a very powerful tool. Um, they're doing good work. Uh, and, and frankly, and Cliff has helped with libertarian campaigns when they're viable, uh, including one in which we won this year um, in, in Wyoming. Uh, Kevin, you're going to have to remember the name. Marshall Bird. Marshall Bird. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Aggie with the save. 
there we go. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but this is something that's extremely powerful and we need to tap into this organization rather than make them an enemy. Um, so anyway, off my soapbox. Second question <laughs> is Northeast and West Coast. That makes complete sense. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, we had eight regional directors when I when I first became an RD, right? So when I started off, I was just overseeing the Northeast. Um, so I've been with them for over a year and a half. I know them all extremely, extremely well. Um, at a certain point, there were some staff promotions that were going to be happening and you know, uh, Dan pulled us into his office and he was like, what do you guys think about overseeing two regions each and running like, and having full-time staffers underneath you to help you out? Um, and we were all on board, you know, it was a promotion. That was great. Uh, but also it's super weird. I didn't expect this to happen, but somehow having four regional directors has made the four of us just run like a well-oiled machine. You know, we hit every impossible metric that was given to us this year. I hate to say impossible because you don't want to think it's out of reach, but really, um, I mean, if you would talk to me a year ago, I might be crying on this podcast thinking about 2020, not because I knew that there were lockdowns that were going to happen, but I mean, come on, we hired over a thousand people. That's unheard of in Yao history. Um, even uh, not this past fall, but the, the fall before, I was struggling to get, you know, 40 people to deploy on a campaign because we're an organization in its infancy. So, you know, the four of us have just really um, hit the pavement. We were on track to have the biggest event that we've ever had in Yale history. Um, and all of this while a freaking pandemic and lockdowns are going on. So I'm actually really glad with the decision, but why the Northeast and West Coast? Um, it like all of the other regions are right next to each other. And then like the West coast was just out there. And, um, I think it was just my personality that made them want to pair the two together because yeah. I, I have more of, um, a personality that can kind of vibe with, uh, you know, more left-leaning places. Yeah. Um, and also just encountering all of the politics in the Northeast has kind of made me adept at wading through the BS in the West Coast. Yeah. Um, but the personalities of the people that I talk to are extremely different. So <laughs> that's been a challenge. Well, yeah, and that's the interesting part is both of those areas are, are very leftist. Um, so mm -hmm. how do you find the right races to focus on and what's that like? Yeah, definitely. So California um, has always been a tough one for us because um, we like to look at races as, um, you know, how much time, money, and energy are we going to have to put into this in order to win, right? California, their races, their state level races cost the same amount that a congress than a congressional race would in other places. So California has been tricky for us. So um, really, we like to get as many surveys as we possibly can. Uh, the Northeast, we elected the most amount of people than in any other region this year. Um, thanks be to God for New Hampshire. You know, that's been a, a godsend for Yale. Um, and I think Yale has been a godsend for New Hampshire. Um, 
but yeah, I think really like finding, finding people to endorse, you would want to talk to my buddy, Justin Maloney. He uh, goes out and finds candidates for us, but um, really it's about just getting surveys out to as many people as possible, you know, and we have this mentality of, you know, the more surveys that we get in, even if they're garbage, um, at least we have these people on record for what they're going to vote for in case they do get into office. So now if we're pursuing a legislative battle that we know they're going to be on our side for, we can go to them and have them as an ally, even if we didn't go and help them, you know? Yeah. No, that's great. Well, talk a little bit about what it's been like to, um, to be a woman in the Liberty movement. Yeah, for sure. So different for women in the movement than it is for men, right? Um, and recently this week, there's been all of this drama about, um, I hate to say this word, uh, liberty thoughts, right? <laughs> Which I've been called many times. Um, and really, uh, the, the problem that I've run into is that um, not everyone, there's been an, an amazing amount of people that don't treat me this way, but people treating me as though um, I got to where I am because I'm a young woman and I'm not like a troll, you know? <laughs> so um, yeah, there's just like a, a lot of bitter resentment sometimes thrown your way for no reason, um, which is fine. I, I kind of have a thick skin at this point. I can handle it. But for even younger women who are baby libertarians, as in they're just getting involved, um, this kind of resentment uh, will push them away, right? Um, it will push them away, especially if you're a young inquisitive woman trying to ask questions and figure things out. Every libertarian online wants you to know everything about everything, right? They want you to be um, a philosopher and <laughs> an economist uh, at the age of 18, you know, um, which I think can be pretty discouraging and there's this tendency to expect people to just know everything as soon as they come. The other problem that I think women, because there are way more men than women in the movement and people want to be in relationships with people ideologically similar to them, women get bombarded with a lot of um, how should I put this? Uh, it could be considered attention. It could be considered prospects, but a lot of times, um, because libertarian men are awkward and don't know how to flirt, it comes off very creepy, you know? Um, and that's, that's another issue that I think we run into. But as for me, um, yes, I have dealt with a lot of stuff and a lot of bad behavior but being a woman in the Liberty Movement has given me a very thick skin and being one of the very few women in leadership in the Liberty Movement has given me a much different perspective than I had in college about feminism and how to treat other women because I grew up looking at other girls as competition. And now I see that um, it's important for me if I'm in a position of, of power to help mentor um, women to rise throughout the movement. 
Yeah, no, that's great. And um, one thing you touched on, I think we've talked about offline in the past is um, the way that people come across when they're promoting libertarianism often is aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a interesting thing the very first time you hear it. And sometimes men and women um, react differently to that type of aggressive promotion of libertarian ideals. Can you talk a little bit about how, how maybe the baby libertarians, you know, see that the first time, especially being that you're, you're promoting to college age students, you know, and you've seen it firsthand and maybe some of the other ways that we can go about doing that, that are a little, um, uh, probably more effective for women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's say that you are a recovering leftist, right? Let's just have an imaginary scenario. And you're like, hmm, libertarianism seems pretty cool. And then you stumble across everyone begging every, like each other to get into a civil war and they have like the boog memes on their profile. And like they're talking about, uh, you know, starting an insurgency against the government. It's fun if you're in the in group, but um, it is aggressive, right? And it's not a really good way to pull women in because uh, we're not usually the types to want to go out and do that, right? Um, I'm not speaking for every woman, by the way. I'm just saying in general. Um, but something we've talked about uh, is um, like to go back to a conversation we had previously, Jordan Peterson and... Um, I think it's six characterizations, six personalities, um, everyone's on the spectrum. And one of them is agreeableness. And um, I've found that women tend to be high in agree agreeableness and libertarians tend to be like bottomed out in agreeableness, right? Everyone wants to argue all the time. Everyone has to be right. Everybody wants to nitpick each other's sentences and words. Um, and everybody wants to be very, uh, what's the word? Like, it's all very sterile and um, like, there's no emotion in a lot of libertarian marketing. And I think that's a problem, you know? And, you know, there's, there's all this infighting between, you know, the Beltway libertarians and the paleos, you know, the Mises versus Cato debates. And I think both of them have good points. And I think both of them are wrong. I think that libertarian messaging thrives when it's speaking towards um, emotions, but in a logical way, right? So how I came to libertarianism was realizing, okay, I care, let's say I care about um, poor people, right? Um, so I'm going to go do some, some educating of myself. That's a terrible phrase, but I'm going to go educate myself and figure out what policies are contributing to people not being able to climb out of their situation. And I realize that the government is largely responsible for most of it. And so I come to libertarianism through this idea that I believe that free markets help poor people the most, right? Um, that is a great message. Like that's great messaging, especially for women. How a lot of libertarians want to message is screw you, um, I'm not responsible for you, you know?
And that does not resonate with women at all. We are caretakers. A lot of us are very maternal. Um, so more emotion driven messaging would definitely help bring more women into the movement. Well, and it's really interesting because, so first of all, I've been guilty um, a thousand times of exactly what you're talking about. So, <laughs> so it hits home. But the interesting part is what I think I'm hearing, and I, I know this from my own family, you know, I was super conservative. My sister was super uh, socialist, you know, in the same household at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, and, and it seems like that, that women do tend to, to, as you mentioned earlier, be a little more liberal during their teenage years. And then during college, they kind of figure out, you know, where they are politically. And if that's the time when we need to have this message that is more, um, more emotion driven rather than uh, hard, aggressive tactics, that would make a whole lot of sense why the, the mix inside the party is what it is, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's just an interesting discussion that we ought to be having. Um, mm-hmm. Not that everybody has to talk a certain way, but just that we need to change some of our marketing tactics, especially yeah. uh, in certain age groups, certain demographics. You know, you don't try to go to the super liberal state and and win as a right wing, you know, as a right wing uh, libertarian. And, and you don't try and come to Oklahoma and win as a you know, um, a socialist libertarian, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just an interesting discussion that, that most people are not having. Most people just like to fight about what we talked about. Um, (laughs) and even, even myself just thinking about how we message online, you know, most of the time it's snark, most of the time it's numbers, you know, most of the time Mm -hmm. it's, um, people who think this are, are ridiculous, you know, and very, very seldomly is it, you know, this is why this actually, the socialist belief that you hold would actually be fixed by capitalism and not by Mm -hmm. socialism. And that's an interesting message. It's an interesting way to go about it. Yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, what drew me to libertarianism was the idea that libertarians actually acknowledge that there are very real problems in the world. It's the same thing that made me a leftist when I was a teenager, right? Um, I I like to think about me being a leftist as being um, like having out of focus lenses on, right? Where I could see like a blurry shape of something that was wrong with our country and with the world, but I couldn't actually see the details in it. Um, And libertarian, libertarianism helped me see the details and and see what was really going on. Um, So yeah, there, I'm also guilty of snark. I really am. I'm sure you guys have seen it. Uh, Sometimes I I feel pretty bad about it too. But um, even when I was um, on campus in college, I had a ton of socialist friends um, that I used to hang out at a coffee shop with every day. And we talked politics and philosophy for hours and hours and hours, right? Um, And they would always express to me that I was the only libertarian or right-leaning person that they could really have a conversation with because I would listen to them. And instead of trying to be like, oh no, you're wrong. You're just too emotional. Um, This or that you're selfish. You're trying to steal from me. I would actually like try to look at the problem that they 
we're talking about and give them a libertarian solution to it. And I think that kind of messaging is something that's going to bring not just women into, into the movement, it's gonna bring a lot of people. Um, and I think the other thing uh, that would lead more people to becoming libertarian is actually winning, yeah. you know? Um, actually seeing the proof in the pudding, um, actually having a mouthpiece for our ideas that's not just like online, you know? Um, or in our, our libertarian uh, echo chambers, I think, I think that's, that would be very helpful, in my opinion. Yep, I agree. Well, yeah, I think, um, no, these are all great points. I think that um, the winning is obviously the hardest one to get across. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. We took a state house seat. I think we have a few hundred elected libertarians across the country, most of which are city council and, and that type of thing. Um, and we have how many, Kevin? Four or five in Oklahoma. Um, uh, five, five now. Five in Oklahoma. Not bad. <laughs> you know, it's starting. Um, mm. You know, but you're right. As as that starts to happen, you know, you gain more credibility in those areas where we have them. So, so our libertarian city council person in Bethany is now the vice mayor. You know what I mean? And you know, whether he can move up from there, we'll see, but he's, he's his name's getting bigger and bigger. And um, so I think that winning is definitely something uh, that we have to focus on down the road. Any thoughts on what libertarians can do in the next cycle um, to maybe uh, get y'all's attention? And what does a libertarian candidate have to do to be attractive um, for that? Yeah, definitely. So I would really advise first going to an LCA. Um, that's our Liber Liberty Candidate Academy. We actually have one in Newark this weekend um, that a bunch of my people from the Northeast will be at. Uh, that's a great way to get y'all's attention. That's how we've found plenty of our endorsements this cycle, actually. Um, and that is a an 18-step training, I think, of... Um, absolutely everything you would need to know to run for office. Uh, just showing up to that, you end up putting your candidate survey in, right? So the candidate survey is the most important thing to getting our attention because we do read the candidate surveys. Um, we do look into everybody. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll get absolutely atrocious surveys that we don't really bother reading into any further. Um, but I think the other thing is, uh, is that you know, there will be libertarian candidates that will submit a survey and their survey is just perfect, right? Chef's kiss. They're like, God, I want this person in office. And then you go in and look at um, like their actual race and you're like, they're running as an LPR in a 75% Republican district where the uh, current elected official is actually very popular, right? That is not a race they're gonna be able to win. It doesn't matter if Yao comes in and knocks doors, you know? Um, even in, you know, the Liberty Republican races that we go and knock in, we don't win every one of them. I think there's this misconception that um, we only go in and knock races that are like shoe-ins. That's not the case, but we also, can't go in and perform like a miracle. You know what I mean? Um, the other thing 
that leads people to not being taken seriously by us is what their plan is for fundraising. Um, if I'm talking to a candidate or, um, you know, I, I talk to LP people in my region and they're like, oh, have you heard about this candidate? I'm like, okay, how much money have they raised? And if they're like, oh, they've raised $200. I'm going to be like, they're not, they're not going to win. You know, there's um, fundraising is a very uncomfortable thing. I think for libertarians, um, because we feel like we're taking people's money. Um, but that's a voluntary exchange. Do you right. know what I mean? Someone, yeah. someone's buying into the idea that you can win. Um, but any serious candidate for public office is going to have to get over the fear of asking people in their lives for money to fund their campaigns in order to win. It's just, it's just the fact of life. So for me, if I hear you're not fundraising, I don't, I probably won't win. Also, um, when I was talking to LP name guys, um, he was telling me about, you know, uh, Ricky for Senate um, and other big LP races that were going on in the country. And I started asking him questions because I've been doing elections for a very long time. So, um, you know, I know the few key things that need to be there in order to have a successful race. Um, and I never saw any national phone banking pushes. I never saw people hopping in buses to go and you know, knock doors for him in Arkansas or anything like that. And, you know, I think for me, it's been pretty frustrating because I'll, I'll have people yell at me over the Yale endorsed candidates, as I'm sure you heard from Cliff. But I also see these people not really putting in any blood, sweat and tears into making LP races happen. And, you know, there's like the conception, the perception that this is easy is totally wrong, right? I worked, you know, weeks on end, you know, I busted my ass in the snow in order to, in order to win these races. And so did all of these other kids that deployed to different states. Some of them had to live in hotels. Like this is a hard thing to do, you know? Um, the fight for liberty is never going to be easy. So you have to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be realistic about your chances. You have to put the scarce resources that you have into the right races, you know? And you have to be willing to go and risk it all, basically, in order to win. So that would be my advice. Uh, th that was a long rambly statement well, no, but i hope it made sense it's great because we just had um rex lawhorn on a little while back uh, and he was talking about what races to target and how much you should have to you know fundraise in order to to take a race seriously and what strategy the mm -hmm. lp state you know organizations should take not trying to put somebody in every race but trying to cherry yeah. pick and really figure out where yeah. to go yeah, and uh, it was very good. And it was much like what you were just talking about here in Oklahoma. We had 44 races where there was no competition. So just mm -hmm. the incumbent ran and won. Um, mm -hmm. and, and those 44 times when you could have had a head to head and then taking it a step further uh, to your point, 
you could look at those 44 and say, okay, 38 of them are 80% Republican, you know, mm-hmm. and six of them are 50-50 or 60-40. Those are where you have a chance to win. Um, and so I really like the message. And, and I think Cliff talked a lot about how they decide who to pick, you know, and y'all. And, and yeah. I think it's really interesting way to go about it. And then the fundraising is key. I mean, even in my state race, I think we raised like 12 grand. Um, and, uh, and there were some issues there, but it's not bad. Yeah. But it wasn't bad. But, but even that, I mean, uh, we needed to do more if we really wanted to win, you know what I mean? Like we, and, and you really need 10 grand up front and then, and then go from there. And so, so I think people need to be realistic when, when they're talking about trying to get y'all support, you know, you need to have a winnable race. You need to be willing to raise money. Um, and you need to, to, I mean, you're, you're asking people to spend a bunch of time helping you out. Um, so just know that, you know, time is money. And so you're basically asking for money in that regard. You need to have a winnable yeah. race. I think it's a good message. Absolutely. Sorry, um, I think up? you guys hit it all. I don't, I don't, I think you guys hit everything. I don't, I think that, uh, I think this has been a great episode. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, Maggie. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I know it's been hard to schedule and everything, and I've been a little difficult, no. but this was no, great. great. Yeah, I hope I brought energy like you guys yeah, asked this for. Was great. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you one more time. We'll put it in the show notes as well, but uh, tell them where they can find you. Great. So it's at Liberty Anders on Twitter. Um, I am always on there painfully. <laughs> I am terminally online. So um, yeah, just hit me up on there. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks again. We appreciate it. We're going to bring you back on here sometime in the future. Sounds great. Thank you guys so much. Y'all have a great night. Yeah, me too.